All right, Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. You know, I remember years ago, Lisa and I were married. We had two kids at the time, and we needed a new vehicle. And I went and I signed the papers on a vehicle. Now, this was going to be kind of a monumentous event for me because it was the first time 
that I bought a vehicle on my own since leaving my parents' house that I also had to borrow money for to buy the vehicle. We looked and we found this car and we bought it and we thought life was great. We were enjoying the new car. It was a used vehicle. And within a couple of days, it started kind of making some noises and kind of acting up a little bit. And I thought, what in the world is the deal with this? So I took it back to the dealer where I bought it. They put it in their shop. And then they called me back later and they said, well, here's the deal with your car. Your car's got something the matter with uh, the vacuum system or something somewhere. But we don't know where the problem is. So we really can't give you a price because we're just going to have to look and fix things until until we find out what's wrong with it, until finally we get that one thing fixed. And so I can't give you an estimate on what it's going to cost. And I said, well, you guys just sold me this car, so you're going to cover it, right? No, we're not going to cover it. And my finances were such that I was stretching to make the payment. (laughs) The reason I made the payment was so I would have a dependable vehicle, and it was turning out to not be the case. And so anyway, I told him, I said, well, I can't go there. I'm not giving you this car on an open ticket, and we got a problem here. Something's got to resolve. Well, I called my dad, who lived about four or five hours away over in eastern Washington, and he came over to help me deal with it. And so we went in and, and talked to him. And by this time, the, the problem that was there compounded on, on top of maybe a little bit of buyer's remorse. I just wanted to wipe my hands with it and be done with it. Anyway, we're, we're sitting there with the, the salesman, and the salesman says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we take you out of that car? We'll, we'll get you in a different car. We got this nice little car, clean car, little four-door, great for your family, and it was. We got that deal. And I'm just feeling nervous about the whole thing now, and I'm like, I don't know. I think I just want you to get me out of this one. And it was at that point that my dad looked at me, and he could see what I was going through, and he says, what are you trying to do here? He said, Look, if you're if you're all of a sudden thinking that maybe it wasn't a good idea for you to go out and get a loan for a car, which is a decision that you already made, good decision or bad decision, it's a decision you made and you entered into a contract with these other people. If you're thinking that's the case, well, then that's not why we're here. He said, if he's willing to make good on this, then you need to follow through. You already decided you were going to do this. That was a decision you made in the past. And you need to hold up your end of the bargain if he's going to hold up his end of the bargain. You know what I'm saying? I'm so thankful for my dad. Well, for lots of reasons, but for that moment. Because, you know what, I was able to walk out of there feeling really good about everything. Had a car that was reasonable. Payments that still may be tough to make, but we made them. And I also could hold my head up because I'd carried out my end of the deal. I'd held to my end of that bargain or that, that covenant, that contract that we both had signed. And I learned something that day about the value of a contract, of a covenant like that. Well, we've been talking a lot about covenants in in here because that's what God does with His people. God is a covenant-making God. Why? Because He's faithful. In other words, God is not hesitant to put His name on the line and say, I'm committed to you. In fact, He's just done that with the nation of Israel. He delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt where they were in bondage as slaves, and he brought them out into the wilderness, and he made a covenant with them. He says, look, these are the things that I'm going to do for you, and these, this is the way that you're going to live as my covenant people. And they, 
We just recently learned about that, how they made this covenant with God and they had these sacrifices and they sprinkled blood on everything to signify that this covenant was a holy covenant before God. And the Ten Commandments were the were part of that covenant that this is how we're going to live. We're not going to make any graven images. We're not going to worship any other gods. We're going to honor our parents. We're not going to steal and we're not going to commit adultery and we're not going to uh, commit murder and we're not going to covet other people's stuff and all these different things. And there's other... Laws that went in along with it as well. But God said, this is how I want you to live, and this is how I'm going to watch over you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to take you into the promised land. And what do you think? And they all said, absolutely, we're on board. And they had this ceremony where they made the covenant official, and so they said, we are on. And then Moses goes up on top of the mountain to finish ratifying the covenant. He's up there, God's giving him the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. He's describing to him exactly how he wants the tabernacle to be built and all those things, how God's going to dwell in among them. And then when Moses comes back down, he's going to come down bringing the tablets. It should have been a great time of celebration that they would have this kind of a covenant with the God of the universe. And instead, they violated it. They didn't last 40 days before breaking faith with God before making these other gods. And that's what we're looking at here this morning is Israel's violation of the covenant. We see the covenant violated. We also are under covenant. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on that cross and His resurrection from the dead are the new covenant. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are entering into a covenant with Him. We repent of our sin and we trust in Him and He delivers us from our sin and gives us an eternity with Him. That's the new covenant. So anytime we sin, we violate that covenant. Just like Israel violated that their covenant. And we can see things that they did, ways that they caved, that can, uh, well, they're going to sound very familiar. Because they're some of the same ways that we falter at times. And that can help us to overcome those things as well. But as we're going to look, we're kind of breaking it down into three stages because basically the first thing we see is in this is the rebellion. We're going to see God's response to that. Lastly, we're going to see redemption because Moses is going to stand in the gap between God and His wrath and the nation of Israel and their sin, and he's going to be that one that's going to stand in the gap and save their lives. Also, pointing forward to, that's exactly what Christ does for us. First of all, the rebellion. There's several, about a half a dozen characteristics of the rebellion that stand out within this. The first one is the impatience. Rebellion is impatient. They hear the voice of God. They hear the thunder. They see the lightning. It's an amazing display. They've also recently seen God destroy all the gods of Egypt because every plague that God brought took down one of Egypt's gods. And so they've seen God destroy all the gods of Egypt, bring them across the Red Sea on dry land, and destroy the armies of Pharaoh, and then give them water from a rock, manna, what they didn't even know what it was to eat, and all these amazing things that God did for them. And all of a sudden, what do they do? They say, we're going to make a God worship this golden calf. You're who brought us up out of Egypt. It's only been not even 40 days because Moses isn't back down off the mountain yet. You know, I was thinking about that in my own life. A lot of the sins that we find ourselves stepping into and a lot of the foolish decisions that we make are because we're not patient. Because we're not willing to wait 
for God's timing. We try to rush things. We try to take control and make things happen. And that often is exactly the problem with some of the sins that we end up in. It might be something that's a good thing at the wrong time or in the wrong context. But we need patience. We need to be able to wait for God. That's what they were supposed to be doing at that time. Just waiting. That's it. In the New Testament, we find a similar warning. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is written to a bunch of Christian people that are, they were Jewish people that had converted to Christianity. And they were being persecuted for their faith by the other Jewish people. And so because they're not part of the synagogue anymore, they're part of the church, they're being persecuted. So their, their businesses are suffering. They, they've gone through some real hardship. These people, because of that persecution, they were tempted. You know what, maybe we should just go back to the temple and worship there and forget about this Jesus stuff. Well, because of that temptation, the author of Hebrews writes to them and says, no, you need to hold strong. In chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive What is promised? You have need of endurance. You know, when we are struggling with an issue or with something in our life, and we're praying about it and we're waiting on the Lord, that's what we need to keep doing. You see, that's what Israel needed to do. They They were where they needed to be to begin with. They just made the covenant with God. Things are looking good. They just needed to hold tight. They just needed to be faithful. Things would have been good. So we need to exercise patience. Look at even the current events that are going on. In, across our nation, especially in the larger cities. But one of the things that I find is I keep asking myself the question, what's the hurry? There's no patience. You know, have there been some abuses in places? Well, I think the investigations need to conclude. Some yes, some no, I think. But you know what the fact is, is when I look at it from the outside, it looks to me like there's processes involved, and those processes take some time to unfold. And people are getting arrested and indicted and all those things, but it takes time and patience. We need to be patient. And that's what rebellion is very impatient. Now, also, not only is rebellion impatient, rebellion is also foolish. Notice what what they say to Aaron. Make us gods. Make us a god. Now, if you stop and think about that phrase, that phrase itself is ludicrous. Right, The idea, make us a God. If I can make a God, there's got to be some puny God if it's going to be fashioned at my hands. But that's the whole point. When you look through Israel's history, they constantly go off worshiping other gods and God will say, what are you doing? I made you. That's what God does. God isn't made by us. I made you, He says. And he says, you fashion something out of the fire, and it has ears, but it can't hear. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has eyes, but it can't see. And then what do you do? You bow down to it. How foolish is that? And then not only that, but I find it a little ironic that when they go to make make this God, what do they shape it into? A calf. Now, I like cows. Big Macs. Quarter pounders. But... Uh, worship? 
bowing down before a calf is, is foolish. I had a professor even in college that made a point using a cow. He says, you know, you drive down a road and there's a cow standing out in the middle of the field chewing its cud. He says it's bringing glory to God. You know why? Because that's what it was created to do. Stand out in the middle of the field, do what it does. We eat it when we need it. And it's part of God's creation. Glory to God. To take it and make a golden image of it and bow down and worship of it is definitely raising it to a status that it never was intended to enjoy. I look at a cow standing there chewing its cut out in the middle of the field and I don't see excessive wisdom coming from that animal. I don't see answers to my prayers. We went to the lake this summer. Well, lots of times we've gone to the lake and a couple times coming back, Jerry's cows have been out on the highway. You know you can't even get them off the road. We're pulling a boat and we just kind of keep plogging along behind them and they kind of look at you and stare you down every once in a while like, who do you think you are? This is my road. (laughs) And then they'll turn around they might run down the road a little bit and finally when they get back to their spot, their hole in the fence, then they finally make their way back in or Jerry comes out on his four-wheeler. He can get them there a little quicker. But uh, we just kind of sit there put flashers on so nobody comes and hits this dumb cow that's standing on the middle of the road. The whole point is, boy, does it look foolish making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping that thing. But you know what? That's the same point in our lives. What do we replace God with? We don't replace God with a golden calf. We're far too sophisticated and intelligent for that. But what do we replace Him with? We replace Him with sometimes homes, cars, possessions, reputation, pride. We end up putting other things first in our life. And anytime we put something above God in our life, that becomes our God. We, re- we replace God with things that are just as, just as foolish. But you know what? It is interesting that as you look down through the history, and even currently today in different parts of the world, that they take parts of creation and worship that as if it was, as if it was God. In Romans in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. As you look around creation, you see the power and the wisdom of God as everything in this world functions together as one. It's it's an amazing universe. He's talking about like the awe that you get as you stand there looking out over an ocean or at a height watching the leaves change over the forest or or watching the water run down a, a, a river or just the beauty looking at a starry night. He's saying God is so visible in the things that He has made. For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Instead of worshipping the Creator, they worship the creature. We still do it in our society. Instead of worshipping the Creator, we worship the creation itself. We don't really see too many people making images of cows or things like that around anymore, but the environment or environmental issues 
Now, we are to be good managers, good stewards of the environment. God, that's one of the tasks that God gave us to do back in the Garden of Eden, back in the very beginning. We were to exercise dominion over His creation. But you know what? A lot of times we lose God. In our society, there's a temptation to not recognize God for who God is, but the whole focus goes on the creation itself. In fact, we've even come up with a system for eliminating God altogether. Oh, He didn't really need to be here to create all this, even though there's no answer for where did it come from then. But we actually go against the evidence that is around us to find a loophole or find a way to get rid of God altogether. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. When you look at where the wisdom supposedly is within our society, you'd have to point towards universities, right? Because that's where supposedly the transfer of wisdom takes place. And within our universities, what is the predominant theory that is pushed in our universities? It's evolution. No God, all this happened on its own. In spite of the fact that we have an enormous fossil record without one fossil of a transitional creature between any species and any other species. Absolutely non-existent. And in spite of the fact that there is no mechanism for new DNA. What I mean by that is, is simply this. You see, uh, your, your kids and stuff are taught in their, in their classes that look at what happened, like well, look Darwin's finch beaks and that kind of thing, or the moths back in Europe during the Industrial Revolution. Right? They look at these moths and they say the moths were predominantly white, a few gray ones here and there, but mostly white because they blended in very well. But then what happened was industry. And so they went up with smog and things started turning gray in London and surrounding areas. And so pretty soon the moths are turning gray. We have more gray moths than white moths. And then you clean up the environment and then back come the white moths. And they say, see, that's evolution. It's actually the opposite of evolution. Because what's happened is within that species, you have variability. There can be there's gray ones and there's white ones. Now, which one are you going to have more of? whichever ones the birds aren't eating the most of. And so if the birds can see the white ones really easy, then you're going to have more gray ones survive. If they can see the gray ones really easy, you're going to have more white ones survive. And so you're going to have a little flux. But the point is, within that moth, there's been no genetic change. You've altered the scale as to which genetic information is more predominant, but all the genetic information has stayed the same within that moth. Now, what do you have to do to get evolution, macroevolution? actually going from one species to another. You have to get new DNA. You see, you and me and every creature in this world is born with the genetic makeup of our parents. Half of it comes from our mom, half of it comes from our dad. Everything within my mom is human. Everything within my dad is human. And I get 27 chromosomes from each of them, and those both form me. So how am I going to get to be anything other than a human if I don't have anything but human DNA within me? And that's the point. There is no mechanism within nature, within creation, that adds a different kind of DNA. It's impossible. We're like a sealed system. But the prevailing wisdom is, we're just going to believe it anyway. That's the point, is is in spite of the evidence that's there, in spite of the impossibility of anything like that taking place, we're going to believe it. Why? Because it gets rid of God. And then I get to be God in my life. I get to call the shots. And, and so you see the foolishness of these things? That's exactly what I'm talking about. These people actually bowed down before the image of a cow. What are we willing to swallow to push him out of the picture? Not only that, it's costly. Aaron says, all right, bring in your gold. And they are donating the gold to fashion this foolish cow. Not only is it costly, it's infectious. 
Notice it's not just affecting them. It's infecting their kids. He says, bring me the gold from you, from your wives, from your sons, from your daughters. Your whole family is being impacted or infected by this idolatry. That's the way it is. If I fall into sin, no matter what that sin is, I am going to impact my family in a negative way. We're not islands to ourselves. The decisions that we make and the harm that we bring in, it impacts the people that are around us. If I go off the path and go a direction that God doesn't want me to go, you know what? I'm going to impact my wife. I'm going to impact my sons and my daughters and my grandkids. And I'm going to impact you as my church family and my friends and my community that I live in. We cast a long shadow. There's many ripples where that rock hits the pond. Our sin is infectious to other people. We need to think about how we're impacting other people as well. Not only is it infectious, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. We like to say that it's not. We like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And I've heard over the years so many excuses. Uh, You can actually do a very horrible thing and make yourself look pretty good doing it. But only to you. Everybody else sees through it. And you know what? I've done the same thing. I'm not innocent of that. Aaron, what he does is very deliberate. Aaron says, bring me the gold. And what does it say? It says he fashioned it. He fashioned it. He took it out of that, melting it down, and he formed it. He shaped it. He engraved it. He put in the work on it. Now, when Moses shows up, what does Aaron tell him? We just like threw all this gold in the oven and out. look what came out. Really? <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I thought how far... Fetched is it from us? How many sins do we commit and we say, well, I never intended to do that. It just, it just happened. And you stop and think through some of the things that we use that excuse for and those things just do not just happen. There's a lot of, lot of wrong before to get it to, wow, just happened. Aaron did a, had a lot of things. He was in there pretty deep before it just happened to come out. You know, and that's the thing is, is when we sin, when we rebel against God, we try to give ourselves a loophole, but it's, it's not. It's deliberate. Lastly, it's shallow. It's shallow because what does Moses find when he comes back? They engaged in revelry. They got up to play. Whatever feels good, do it. That's what, the, that's what they were living by at the moment. They were involved in all kinds of horrible things right there. Why? Because it just felt good at the moment. They're not making decisions on good principles. They're not making good decisions on good wisdom. They're not making decisions that are faithful, strong, good character, good. They're just shallow. But the next one is the response. What is the response that God holds them to? Well, his first response is judgment. In fact, it's interesting to watch this conversation between God and and Moses. Because God comes and He says, All right, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. Moses, in his part of the conversation a little bit, says, Wait a minute, God, your people who you brought out of Egypt. (laughs) So it's like like neither of them want to own them. It's, it's kind of like uh, one of those things, you know, when your kids are doing good, it's like, hey, that's my boy. And when they're doing bad, you tell your wife, hey, your son, <laughs> you know, is, uh, is blowing it here. Lisa and I got so tired of the back and forth, we just decided, look, we're not taking any, any responsibility at all. We're, God can have all the credit. Somebody else can get all the blame. We're just one out of it. <laughs> but, not really. Well, kind of. But... <laughs> But when you see God's response, God's response is wrath. Why? Because these people just violated the first commandments. Now, what, is, what happens as we look through the passage? First of all, responsibility. They're held individually responsible. In fact, God's first thing is they're all going to die. But there was an individual accountability. 
And you know what? That's the fact. The matter is, when we sin, we sin. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not your mom's fault. It's not your dad's fault. It's not your society's fault. It's not whatever uh, authority is over you's fault. It is your fault. And that's what they were held individually accountable for their sin. But not only that, but there is also an accountability for leadership. Notice what God tells Aaron in verse 25. It says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, I like the way that's put. They're broken loose. It's kind of the idea of, uh, well, if we go back to the animals for a minute, you know, when a dog gets off the leash. But notice the, what's in parentheses. For Aaron had let them break loose. There's a place where the buck stops with leadership. You know, we're looking down at like the, the precinct down in Minneapolis that was burnt to the ground. And I look at the authorities down there and I think, why would you let that happen? Whatever size the riot is, you better bring in a force bigger than that to handle that. And it would be squelched immediately. Our leaders are responsible. You should not have let that happen. People have broken loose and you should have done whatever it took to put a stop to there. Well, and lastly, we look at redemption. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the people. They're going to be destroyed. And Moses stands in the gap. And you know why? And we'll know this, because that's exactly what is the mind of Christ. That's exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is standing in the gap. 